the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Ron Geyer Roofing. The Bible describes events that will mark the last days or end times. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Matthew 24.44 tells us, Therefore you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Bible teacher Ron Geyer leads us through Scripture that will help us to remain strong in the Lord. End Time Insights with Bible teacher Ron Geyer starts now. Hi, everybody. Good evening again. This is Ron Geyer with more End Time Insights. We appreciate you tuning in. And as always, I'm excited. We've got some great scriptures to talk about today. You know, we've been talking about the last days, the appearance of mankind, the dangers that are going to befall the church. We're talking about the behaviors within mankind that Paul outlines. And today's topic is going to be from Second Timothy chapter 3. I know I've hit on a lot of this before, but I really haven't gone in depth into the 19 characteristics of end-time mankind behaviors that Paul writes about, and I really want to break that down because it's important. You'll see a lot of the issues that face America today, a lot of the issues that are currently um, prevalent, and a lot of the uh, topics that the church does not seem to be addressing will be covered in Paul's assessment of what this end-time behavior of mankind looks like. Uh, you probably know the scripture by now. It's Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And I want to reference the 19 characteristics, but let me, let me get started. Let me read it to you. This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. You know that. And Paul is once again writing about the dangers to the church and basically everybody that's here at that time about what's going to be taking place. These are not perilous times because of global warming or climate change or world wars or um, calamity in the skies. They're not perilous times because drinking water or diseases. These are perilous times because of the behavior of mankind. It's the behavior of mankind that puts us at risk. So here we go. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. We spoke about this two weeks ago, that men would be lovers of self. And that is the first one of the 19. And pretty much A lot of them that come after that, out of the 18, they fall into the category. They are the product of men loving themselves. Basically, it was men kissing men. That's not in the sense of illicit sexual behavior. That is just in the sense of self-love. Man loves him so much. You know, it's like in the mirror. Remember growing up with Fonzie? He'd go to the mirror. He's going to comb his hair, but he didn't have to comb it because it looked perfect. That's the attitude of mankind's behavior, and we just want to— Paint that as an emotional word picture for you so you understand this. For men shall be, it's the I am generation. We are self-absorbed. We are focused on ourselves. Man or mankind will no longer live by the moral standard that we once lived by when we always cared for others first. Matter of fact, we had a uh, speaker at our church last week. His name was Bruce, I think it's Marciano. And he was the actor that played Jesus in the movie Matthew. 
It, my wife loves the movie. It's a great movie. It was a happy Jesus, a pleasant Jesus. She saw a smile on Jesus' face as he was healing people and doing the work that God sent him to do. It's a very pleasant picture of Jesus Christ. But he says that one of the things that he took away from playing that role was that he really had a sense, he really had a revelation of how much Jesus poured out of himself into others. He was constantly giving and giving and just emptying himself out to meet the needs of others, to reveal himself to the people that came to him. And that's what's going to be missing in this end time behavior of mankind. We're not going to be doing that anymore. Even in the church, we're struggling. Our motives for serving often are based on other things than having other things as opposed to having a heart of service, having a motivation that I want to do for you what I can do for you. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. They shall be covetousness. They shall be covetous, have a spirit of covetousness. They will be lovers of money, not so much for the idea behind of accumulating wealth, but for the idea that it's what this money can get for me. How can I gratify myself? How much money do I need to get the things that I want? That's the idea behind lovers of money. And I wrote it like this. They want to meet their needs. They want to gratify themselves through their prosperity. That's fleshly gratification. Ideally, we're supposed to be gratifying ourselves through his presence. And that's a spiritual gratification. But because we are lovers of self in these last days, we are focusing on how can I scratch my carnal itches? How can I gratify myself in the realm of carnality? And that's one of the signs that comes. That's one of the topics that we put under the heading of men shall be lovers of themselves. So men shall be lovers of their own selves. They shall be covetous. They shall be boasters. And because we are so in love with ourselves, nobody can do anything better than we can do. Nobody caught the bigger fish. Nobody got the better stereo. Nobody accomplished the things that I've accomplished. Once again, we're thinking about ourselves, and we see this in the athletics that we have in America today. You get athletes in front, and they just taking the glory for themselves. They are receiving the glory that should go to God. You know, if you've got an athletic gift, then yes, you develop it. You practice, practice, practice. You become proficient at something and you excel in your field. You may even become the greatest, Muhammad Ali. And Michael Jordan pretty much was the greatest. And it's okay, but if we take the glory for ourselves, we are depriving the glory due his name and there's always going to be a penalty to pay. And one of that is a boastful spirit, an exaggeration. You know, if it gets me what I need, it's okay for me to talk about it. You know, this boasting, it's interesting because when we did uh, marriage classes, we talked about the author's name was Gary Chapman, and he wrote a book. It was called The Four Love Languages. And one of the things that we notice is people that boast about themselves, they probably, their love language is probably they have a need for words of affirmation. That's a need that I have. I need to be told that I'm doing well. When you come up to me after I've preached or I've done something and you said, Ron, that was great. That was awesome. I love you. I'm happy. I'll come over. I will cut your grass. I'll clean your car. I'll do anything you want. You have made my day. You have filled my love tank. What happens with people who boast, they are filling their own love tank. And the danger in that is the whole idea behind the study of words of affirmation, behind the study of the love languages, it's all about relationship. We're supposed to be creating relationships with one another. But when we are the one that's filling our own love tank by boasting, there's no relationship there. It's creating a relationship with ourselves of adultery. It's creating a relationship ourselves. We're becoming boasted. We are in love with ourselves. It is symptomatic of the end time behavior that falls in line with that scripture.
So they're going to be covetous. They're going to be boasters. They're going to be proud. You know, this is very dangerous. We've known that pride comes before the fall. There's always something to be paid for. There's always a penalty when we go ahead and we violate the word of God. Pride is basically it's putting yourself above someone else or pretty much everyone else. It's arrogance. It's having a snotty or snobbish demeanor. We're haughty. In my opinion, I think there's an excessive pride within the church in the leadership of pastors and people that are in the fivefold ministry. You know, Jesus was never unapproachable. He was always accessible, whether it was the woman with the issue of issue of blood crawling in the dust, in the mud, on the ground to reach him. He would stop what he was doing. Blind Bartimaeus that was crying out in the crowd, a man that was put off by the disciples. No, no. Jesus called him to it. The guy that came in through the roof, they broke up the roof and they carried him in there. The children, let the children come. Don't keep the kids from coming to me. Jesus always had a heart for the people, and he always had a compassionate heart for the people with need. Matter of fact, it was through the compassion of Christ that we see most of his miracles that were done. You have to have the right motive, and a motive of pride will just separate you. You know, I was talking about the fact that a lot of these preachers, they become pride, they're arrogant in their prominence. And part of that is because of us as congregants. We've exalted them. There was a scripture going around in the 1980s that was misused. It talked about touch not God's anointed. We exalted our leaders, our pastors, to positions of great, great uh, power and almost worship. And you couldn't say anything about them. You couldn't say anything against them. You couldn't meet them. You couldn't talk to them about anything. I understand that they are to be spiritual leaders. I understand that they're to be spiritual guides. But at the end of the day, that doesn't take place over them being my spiritual servant. I look to them to make sure that I'm on the straight and narrow. But that should be creating them a heart of service, not a heart of dominance or a heart of pride that you are above the congregation. Uh, Who was it? It was Walter. It was um, Lester Summerall. And he had said that I will never take so much money. I will never put myself in a position that I am living so far above the means of the average person in my congregation. It was important to him that he stayed in close contact with them, just like Jesus. Jesus came and he was touched with our infirmities. He experienced what we went through. You don't want to have a pastor where he is living so much above you and the average in the congregation that we tend to, you know, he's got a whole bunch of people around him. He's got posses. He's got yes men. He's got people that will keep us from coming to him. I want access to my pastor. There are pastors that go out and they say, well, we're not going to, I don't want to take your tithe. And they act like that's all holy and everything. Nothing could be further than the truth. I work hard. I sweat. I bleed often in getting money for my needs, for my household, for my wife. And when I bring that tithe to you, that's an act of holiness. I'm bringing it to the Lord Jesus. You're representing him as a representative of the high priest of the tithe. And when I give that to you, that creates a spiritual bond. And I need that. But when you diss it, when you tell me it's not important to you, I know it's a false humility is what it is. You're saying, I don't need it. I've got this. We wrote some books and everything like that. The end of the day, if you wrote those books because you're a famous pastor in a church, that money belongs to the church. That's all I'm going to say about that. Anyway, uh, let's see, where are we? Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And don't misconstrue this blaspheming, uh, blasphemers. The way it's written in context here, it's not about blaspheming God. It's in reference to having a loose mouth. 
There's foul words coming out, derogatory speech. There's rude language, crude language. You're putting down people. There's no sense of decorum. There is no godly order in what you're saying. There's no limits. There's no restraining. The boundaries on our tongues has no boundaries. There's no sense of accountability for what we're saying. That's what blasphemy is in the Bible in that context. And of course, you know, Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but only that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. I love that. And it talks about, remember, we talked about let. Let is what? It's a power word. Anything that comes after the word let is something you have the power over. So. Make sure you have control of your tongue. No man can tame it, James says, but the Holy Spirit of God inside you. Don't let it be used for cursing or bitterness. Let it be used for blessing and edification. The next one that we want to talk about is disobedient to parents. Don't forget, there's 19 of these, and they're all found in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. So we're up to disobedient to parents, and this is important because... We see this in our society today. You know, children were once pliable. You were able to mold them. You were able to discipline them without recourse, without CPS jumping in, without these people that are accusing us of all sorts of physical harm to our children through spanking. It's all part and parcel to the last day's behavior of a fallen mankind. The dangers are when these get into the church, and that's why we're teaching you this. This behavior should not be associated with the church. Disobedient to parents, you could mold them. They were controllable. Parents no longer have control over the children. Children are uh, suing their parents. They want to divorce themselves from their parents. That all goes with a breakdown in authority. Basically, lawlessness, one of the markings of the end time, Behavior of mankind, one of the precursors to the manifestation of the Antichrist, lawlessness, is now in the family home. And we're not stopping it. Children are now making their own rules by which they're going to live by. It seems parents, and this is true because lots of times parents have lost the moral authority through their own immoral behavior. But we literally have lawlessness in our homes now. We have left the family gates wide open for Satan to come in. Parents, I want to encourage you. You have got to take back ground concerning this. I know it's late. It's tough, especially in a blended home situation where in the blended home, the new parent cannot rule without first creating a relationship. It's important that we do that. But we need to get back to having a relationship with our children. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to have to be done prayerfully. It's going to have to be done with parents living holy lives. But it's something that can be done by faith using the power of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So we're talking about children being disobedient to parents. Unthankful. Unthankful. We see this. Romans talks about it. It's one of the primary, how shall I say it, one of the main culprits in why we are turning our backs on God. We are not thankful to God as a creator. I am not bragging on myself. This has nothing to do with me. All glory to God, the Spirit of God who lives inside me, Christ in me, the hope of glory. There is not a day I don't get out of bed and I am not thankful to God for my life. Hey, it's not the best life on the planet. I struggle with things just like you do. I've got my problems. I've got my challenges. I've got my victories. Now and then I'll even take a defeat. I'll take a blow. But thanks be to God, we are not those that draw back unto perdition. Hallelujah. I am steadfast. I am unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I know that my labor in the Lord will not be in vain. I know that he who has begun a good work in me will perform it until the day of Jesus. 
unthankful, unholy, irreverent. You know, we've lost something being considered sacred and making it ordinary. There are things in America that are even sacred, and it doesn't even have to do so much with God. You know, the statues that honor some great men in our society, men and women who love God, you know, that because it's associated with the South, we think it's racist to have these, and so we remove it as a landmark. The Bible is no longer thought of as a holy book, even in the churches. We spoke to this about three or four weeks ago on our program where David Barton had talked about the fact that 70% of American pastors do not believe the Bible. I mean, that's beyond words. I can't comprehend that. What are you doing in the pulpit if you are not using the inspired word of God, if you are not representing that, if you are not referencing? That's a sacred book. That's a holy book. That's written by God's Holy Spirit for us to live by. And yet 70%, the people who are leading the Christian church in America, don't believe that that's a holy book. What do you do with that? No wonder America is in the mess that we're in. Basically, though, it's unholy. Where is it? Unholy, irrelevant, something being considered sacred and making it ordinary is no longer considered holy. I I don't understand that. You know, uh, our bodies, the Bible says, no, you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. My body is holy. I cannot violate the word of God concerning sexuality. You know, as a man, I have to be uh, faithful. I don't have adulterous affairs. I don't abuse my body. I don't take my body to places it doesn't belong. My body is the holy temple of God. Because that's my starting point for recognizing holiness, it kind of keeps me out of trouble in those other areas. I'm leaving here today and I'm going to go running. I love that. Why? Because I want to buffet my body. My body is the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Temple of God. I no longer put marijuana in my body. I no longer put alcohol in my body because my body is holy. It's a small thing, I'm only one guy, but I can present what holy living looks like to my sphere of influence. And that's what we need to do on a biblical basis, one-on-one, husbands in their family showing them, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. We don't watch pornography movies. We don't watch movies that take the name of the Lord God in vain. We don't watch movies like Halloween movies that that bring fear. You know, if God's not giving you a spirit of fear, then why would you want to watch a TV show that's going to promote fear? I don't understand that. It's just an upside-down world. Ezekiel 22 and 26 has scriptures that reference the lack of holiness and what's happened. Uh, Israel, Judah, her priests have violated my law, saith the Lord, and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane or the unholy. Neither have they shown any difference between the unclean and the clean. You got to understand this. The fact that you are holy... And the fact that the world is not holy, that difference is your witness. I wrote it this way. The church has failed right here. We are to be an example of holy living. We are a holy generation, a royal and holy priesthood. We are people that we are supposed to be showing them what having a relationship with God looks like. Me having a relationship with God produces in me holiness. I am different from you. I don't go to the places where I used to go to party with you. I don't drink the drinks that you drink. I don't do the drugs that you do. I don't belittle my fellow man like you do. I don't have a lying spirit. These are all aspects of my holiness that separate me from you. I don't cheat the tax man at at tax time. 
It's this difference in us that is our witness. You, you know, when Jesus said you're going to be witnesses uh, to Samaria and the other parts of the world, the entire end of the world, you know, he wasn't necessarily saying, go knock on doors and tell them about me. That may include that. But what he was saying is the fact that you know me is going to produce in you a holiness, a holy living. And it's that separation between you and the world that will be a witness. So don't think witnessing is just knocking down doors. It's you and me living holy lives in front of an ungodly world. And that is the opportunity for them. They're going to come and say, hey, why don't you drink anymore, Ron? And you have an opportunity. Be instant in season and out of season. Make sure you've always got a testimony. Hallelujah. Second uh, Timothy three three, last day's behavior of mankind. They be men will be without natural affection. Now I think that covers homosexual uh, relationships. I think it covers our relationships sexually in in our marriages, and it it does in some level. But it's not just talking about that. My wife made this note, and it's really good that uh, without natural affection, it means the loss of the love of one's family. There's, there's no Greek word for it, but this lack of familial affection, affections within the family, between parents, between husbands and wives and moms and dads for their children and children for their moms and dads, this lack of family affection is the result of passing laws that defy and defile God's natural order. When we pass laws that say it's okay for men to marry men and women to marry women, when we pass laws that say it's okay uh, for men to use women's restrooms, when we pass laws that say we're going to go ahead and give marital rights to homosexual relationships, I mean, this is breaking the divine order of God legally, and it's a violation of God's moral laws. When we allow that to happen into our society, it cannot help but destroy the family unit. At the end of the day, if you must know the truth, that's what it's designed to do. It is designed to destroy the family unit, and it's meeting with great success. We need to restore the family unit back in America. We taught marriage classes, and we said this all the time. The strength of a nation is where? It's in its churches. The strength of a church is where? It's in its families. The strength of a family is where? It's in the union between a mom and dad, a man and a woman, in Christ, in the home. That is where the strength of America comes from. When the founders put this nation together and wrote the Constitution, they said this nation will fail unless it is guided by two main principles. Number one, religion. Number two, morality. This is so important. We have left that off. I cannot tell you what a great job President Trump, Vice President Pence, uh, Betsy DeVos, the education secretary. I cannot tell you the judges that President Trump has put on our Supreme Courts and our federal courts to rule and reign in righteousness. That has had a great impact in our nation. Once again, it's not turning our nation around, but it is creating a difference between morality and and immorality in our land. It is creating a difference between righteousness and unrighteousness in our land. It's having an effect in Washington, D.C., where the people are going crazy because the immoral in Washington, D.C., the corrupt in Washington, D.C., they're being found out publicly before everybody. Now, it's not having the desired result yet because the media is covering for them, but they'll come a day. Don't give up. But you on a personal level, you as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you need to go ahead and make sure that you are looking at these mankind end-time behaviors and you're making sure that you don't fall into these. And if you are, you repent. You know, the Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
I think I've only got about eight out of the 19 done. Uh, I can finish them. I'm paid up for the year. I can come back next week and do them. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let me pray for you guys. It's an exciting time to be a Christian. There's so much going on. You've got to read your Bible. I tell you, the more I read the Bible, the more I'm finding out about the mess we're in, but also the more hopeful I become because I know who I have believed in. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep those things that we've committed unto him against that day. What day? This day, the day we're living in now. Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters and those who are listening. Uh, They may not know Christ, Father. And if they don't, we always offer them the opportunity to become a Christian to repent of their sins, to recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for their sins. He died for their sins. He went to hell. God raised him again on the third day. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I offer that to you. I pray you receive it. I pray you walk in victory. In Jesus' name, I'm Ron Geyer. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for End Time Insights with Ron Geyer. Listen again next Sunday night at 8 on 100.7 The Word, where faith comes by hearing. You can also listen to the podcast of this program by going to kkht.com. If you would like to contact Ron, email him at gospelguy at comcast.net.